oftentimes forget about those who work behind the scene. Callan is over there. Karen is often over there. Um, Jerry is often over there. The Paul's back on the board. Jesse is one of our sound techs along with uh, Callan as well. We often forget because they're behind the scenes, but their work is equally important with all that goes on here with making our time of fellowship here one that gives us the sense of being with our God in Christ. So thank you guys. I really appreciate that. As I said, there is no children's Sunday school this morning, but there is a nursery for the, uh, the um, younger ones. So if they want to go out, And we appreciate the voices of those who stay, don't we? <laughs> Let me open us uh, our time with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this morning to hear of your great promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Your word tells us that you orchestrate all things for the good of your people and the glory of your name. I pray that in the moments ahead, you will give us the strength through your ancient words that are ever true to help us cope as you guide us home. And Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your servant who brings your word this morning, that it would bring hope, conviction where, where appropriate, and joy because of your word of truth. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're just saying, can I doubt your love for me when I trace that love's design? And we're going to continue to trace that love's design from the Old Testament through the cross through the end of the New Testament because that is how we know that I am his and he is mine. Now, imagine sitting down with a new novel from your favorite author. Perhaps it's uh, you're waiting for the next installment in, in, in the episode, perhaps, of Francine Rivers' stories of uh, Marta Schneider and her daughter. Or maybe it's the latest plot twist that awaits Agatha Christie's beloved detective Poirot. Regardless of what you're waiting for, can you imagine if you picked up the book and began to read and sur you're surprised to find a completely different story about a character with whom you're not familiar? Well, that could be the feeling that you get when you come to Genesis 38, which is our text this morning. We're continuing our story on Joseph called a man for all seasons. And in chapter 37, we were introduced to Joseph. We saw the tension between Joseph and the favored son of, jo of Jacob and his brothers increase until, remember this, the, the, the bitter flowers of their envy overflowed that garden and they began to think of murder. And when Jacob sent Joseph to check on his brother's safety, they were in the wilderness tending the flocks. As Joseph approached, 
Chapter 37, verse 19 and 20 says this. They said to one another, that's the brothers, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him in one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But providentially, as we learned, a group of Midianite traders passed by on their way to Egypt. And seeing the opportunity for profit, they sold Joseph as a slave. And then chapter 37 ends with Joseph on his way to Egypt in chains. The brothers returned home. They present Joseph's coat covered in goat blood. They tell Jacob that Joseph is dead and their father is overwhelmed in his grief. What will happen next? Will the brother's lie be uncovered? Will Jacob's grief be consoled in some way? What will happen to Joseph in Egypt? All these questions are await an answer as we turn to the next page in chapter 38. But when we turn over to chapter 38, we read this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from the brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And on it goes. Well, wait a minute. What is going on here? The Joseph narrative is what we're expecting. It's the second longest in the Bible, second only to the biography of Jesus. But suddenly the scene seems to change. Is this story out of place? Well, the answer is no, and the reason is found in the opening of chapter 37. Remember that began with that Hebrew word toledoth. Toledoth means these are the generations of and then it goes on to describe the offspring of that particular patriarch. In chapter 37, verse 2, says, these are the generations of Jacob. And while Joseph will be the central character in chapters 37 through 50, Judah is one of Jacob's sons as well. And what we'll find in this story is that God's providence will work on Judah, and he too will become a man for all seasons, like Joseph. A man for all seasons is one who acts and does the right thing regardless of the circumstances. And we'll see that when the chips are down in the coming chapters, Judah's actions, he will lead the efforts that preserve God's people at a crucial moment in redemptive history, in a at a crucial moment in tracing that line of God's love for us. Now, God's promised blessing to all the families of the earth through Abraham will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but his birth is in the future. 
God is waiting for the fullness of time, Paul describes it in Galatians 3. And what the Old Testament reveals then is how God advanced his plan to fulfill his promise in spite of and even through human sin and folly. And how the promise passed from generation to generation, especially in this early stage of redemptive history, is a story where we see God working providentially and with irony as he brings about all things that will, will be for our blessing and his glory. He's advancing his plan here. And the irony is going to be seen when, recall that when Isaac wanted to pass the blessing to Esau, he was deceived into giving the blessing to Joseph or to Jacob because Jacob came in and wearing his brother's coat and disguising himself with goat hair on his hand and neck, he convinced his father that he was Esau and Esau and Isaac gave him the blessing. Even when Isaac was suspicious and asked Joseph directly, or Jacob directly, are you Esau? Jacob lied to his father's face. A generation later, and dripping with irony again, Jacob's sons now sold their brother Joseph. They stole his coat, they smeared it with goat blood, and they presented it to their father, hoping he would draw the obvious conclusion. Even when Jacob refused to believe Joseph was dead, the brothers lied to their father's face. And now, as Joseph is carted away to Egypt, the narrative turns to Judah. And ironically, a coat and a goat will play significant parts in the events ahead. So I invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis 38. I've titled this message, The Coats and Goats of Deception. And the one big idea is, again, on the top of your handout, and it's this. God consistently uses sinful human actions to fulfill his promise to redeem creation through Jesus Christ. So I would ask you to stand for the reading of these opening verses of Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and had it bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. Chapter 38 is the story of Judah's attempt to forge a new life after the tragic sin of selling his brother Joseph into slavery. He leaves his father's home. He marries a Canaanite woman, has three sons, gains a daughter-in-law named Tamar, makes a promise he doesn't keep, and when he's revealed for the sinner he is, he repents and returns to his father. That's the story in a nutshell. 
Let's unpack this together and see how God works through freely made choices, including sinful ones, to accomplish the promise, his promise to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham, the promise that came, as you recall, in Genesis 12. So we'll look at Judah's story in three parts. First, his rejection of God's promise. Second, the revoking of his promise to Tamar. And third, his repentance in light of the truth when it's revealed. And in the end, we'll draw three lessons to help us, help us grow as God continues to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So let's begin with Judah's rejection of God. Now, the story moves quickly through these opening verses, verses 1 through 10, covering about 22 years of Judah's life. Now, verse 1 tells us that while Jacob was grieving the loss of Joseph, Judah left home, traveled about 30 miles away, and formed a friendship with an Adulamite man named Hira. Verse 2 tells us how Judah saw and took a Canaanite woman. And over the next few years, they had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now, the words saw and took are used four other times in Genesis, and always with disastrous results. In Genesis 3, Eve saw and took what was forbidden. And it was the ultimate disaster, the fall of humanity into sin. In Genesis 6, the sons of God saw and took the daughters of men. Huge disaster, the flood of Noah's time. During Abraham's trip to Egypt, he lied to Pharaoh out of his fear, saying his wife Sarah was his sister. Pharaoh, it says, saw and took Sarah. It was a near disaster, only averted by God's providential work. And then finally, in Genesis 34, a prince named Shechem saw and took Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and the, the result was the murder of everyone in that town as her brothers burned it to the ground. So now we're told that Judah saw and took a Canaanite woman, daughter of Shua. And the results could have been another disaster, except for the grace of God. Now, when Ur was about 20 years old, Judah arranged his marriage to Tamar, a local Canaanite woman. And we're not told how he sinned, but whatever it was was bad enough that God put him to death. That left Tamar without a husband. So in verse 8, Judah tells Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up an offspring for your brother. Now, the idea here is an ancient Near East practice called a leverite marriage. Leverite marriage. Leverite comes from the Latin word for brother-in-law. 
And what it did was it provided financially for the widow and it covered the dead man's inheritance because he, was, he would then have an offspring. So think of Boaz and Ruth as the most familiar example that we have. But Onan sees only the loss of his inheritance if Tamar has a son. And his response is stated graphically in verse 9. And for his wickedness, God puts him to death as well. Tamar is now twice widowed. Judah's lost two sons. But he remains responsible for Tamar. Now, his predicament then brings us to our first fill-in. From Judah, we see that small sins lead to greater sins that lead to a spiritual crisis or a ruined life. This little two-letter word, or, is important in this sentence. There's no question that sin hardens our hearts, so we fail to see the harm that we cause to others and ourselves in our sin. But there are always two possible outcomes. A spiritual crisis or a ruined life. The spiritual crisis can but not always lead to repentance, But if the sin continues to blind and harden, it brings brings people to what the apostle called shipwreck, a ruined life. Now, which outcome prevails is, is, is why and what we'll see in the rest of Judah's story. So this brings us to the second point as Judah revokes his promise. He revokes his promise. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For Judah feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah is suspicious here because he's got two sons that have been given to this woman. Both have died. So he's going to leave her in limbo living in her father's house. But the problem is her father is under no obligation for her. He gave her away in marriage years ago. So now she's hovering at the edge of poverty. And Judah, content in his failure and content in revoking his promise and uncaring of Tamar's situation, in verse 12, it says, it says that, that Judah, when his wife, Shua's daughter, died, he was comforted and he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hera the Adulamite. So Tamar now is going to take matters into her own hands. In verse 14 through 18, they say that Tamar, quoting, took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. 
When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Tamar is determined to make Judah honor his duty and provide for her. So she positions herself at the entrance to the town, city gate of the town named Enam. Now, the name in Hebrew can also mean to have your eyes opened. And so it's a form of a pun here. Judah's eyes now are closed. He doesn't recognize Tamar, but his eyes will soon be opened, as we'll see. Now, Tamar, her motive is clear. Although she ha- uh, Shelah had reached the proper age, Judah had revoked his promise, so she dressed herself up as a prostitute, veiled her face, and deceived him with a coat, so to speak, of a prostitute's disguise. Now, when Judah sees her, he propositions her, and she says, well, there's a price. And Judah, having no ready cash, he promises to give her a goat in payment. Now the deception is complete. Tamar has disguised herself in the coat, and Judah has promised the goat. But Tamar doesn't want a promise. She wants a guarantee. She doesn't want a payment. She wants proof of identity. And Judah thinks He's convincing her, but in reality, she's maneuvered him into a trap. So when, when, when Judah asks what would she like as a pledge, she springs the trap and asks for his signet and the cord and his staff, items that prove identity. And once the price is set, the narrative ends with their coupling, Tamar's conceiving, and she returns home and resumes her identity as a widow. Now, In verse 20, Judah and Hera arrive at Timnah. And since Judah uh, needs to be with the flock, he sends Hera back with the goat. And in verse 21, we we read what happened. It says, Hera asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enam, at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said no cult prostitute had been there. And then Judah replied, well, let her keep the things as uh, as her own, uh, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent the young goat, and you did not find her. Now, Haram uses the term cult prostitute so he won't offend the people of Enam. Because prostitution was illegal. But cult prostitution was a Canaanite worship practice. So 
Judas, he, he says, no one, they say no one's seen a prostitute, cult, or otherwise. So Herab returns with this news. And Judas says, basically, well, it's the woman's fault she didn't get paid. I sent the goat. That brings to us our next fill-in, which is one of the 49 warnings in the Bible about pride. You see, when pride comes, disgrace follows. But with the humble is wisdom. Pride leads to disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 11, verse 2. Judah shows how pride can blind us into thinking that our success is from our efforts. But we know in our hearts, and we know from experience, that this is not necessarily the case. Because you don't have to think long and hard about your your past life when you realize that when things were going swimmingly, suddenly everything collapsed, didn't it? Suddenly things seemed to unravel. Which is why it's, it's, it's wisely said that the only constant in life is change. Judah was living the dream in South Canaan. Wool is money, so shearing time was a time of celebration. And with lots of animals, with large flocks, Judah had much to celebrate. So on his way to Timnah, he just figures, I'll get the party rolling a bit early as he sees apparently what he thinks is a a prostitute uh, on the side of the road. But God had plans for Judah even in his sin. With a touch of humor, God arranged all those moving pieces of human choices for Judah to fall for the coat and the goat of deception once again, just like his father and his grandfather before him. But unlike Isaac and Jacob, Judah's deception seems to have no apparent gain. Or does it? We'll soon see how God uses Judah's freely made choices in two ways to advance God's redemptive plan. And that brings us then to the final point. Recall that there are two outcomes from sin and pride. It's either a spiritual crisis or a ruined life. Let's look at what happens with Judah. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she's being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify those things or whose things these are the signet and the cord and the staff. Three months later, and it becomes apparent that Tamar's pregnant. And then the wagging tongues start up in town, accusing her of immorality. And when the news reaches Judah, who still has a claim on her, supposedly for his son Shelah, He is the one that pronounces judgment, and he delivers the harshest of sentences. Bring her out, let her be burned. Now, this rush to judgment is not only harsh, 
It was illegal. But in this prideful demonstration of Judah's false morality comes his disgrace. Tamar produces the items that identified Judah as the one who has impregnated her. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Ashamed by the facts, Judah stands at a critical crossroad in his life. Now, he could stand his ground, insist on his right, offer a lame excuse like we see so often today, or he could repent. You see, the Spirit of God works in Judah at this point to prevent his ruined life and to open his eyes to the trail of brokenness and harm that he has been causing throughout his life. And he repents. He publicly declares, she is more righteous than I. That brings us to then our last fill-in. Choosing wisely at life's critical crossroads is a spirit-powered, gracious gift from a merciful God. Spirit-powered, gracious gifts from a merciful God. You see, for every personal testimony of someone who arrives at rock bottom in life and then desperately turns to Christ, there is someone who, in the midst of enjoying their life, suddenly turns to Christ. Belief isn't always a crisis conversion because God's effective call brings people to spiritual life at the time and the place that God chooses. And when he does, lives are changed. Judah then takes Tamar as his wife. And as verse 27 describes the birth of the twin sons that they have. And once again, God chooses the younger so that as Paul says in Romans 9, God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. Judah's repentance at a high point in his life, even though shamed for the moment, Judah's repentance is because of the spirit-empowered, the God-empowered spirit working in him to bring him to repentance. And with that, his life is changed. And with his family, Judah then leaves the region of Adullam to rejoin Jacob in what will ultimately become the promised land. And Judah, as I said, will become a man for all seasons because he will lead the negotiations that save the infant struggling nation of Israel from annihilation. So instead of Judah's story being an interruption in the Joseph narrative, it's perfectly placed here to show us the importance 
of, these, of three biblical lessons. The first is this. 22 years of Judah's rejection to redemption story stands in contrast to the 22 years we will soon track of Joseph's um, faithfulness to God in Egypt. Jesus makes the point here about spiritual pride that can well up in people. I mean, think about this. 22 years Judah has been a bozo, so to speak. Yet now he's brought to repentance and faith, and he's reunited back with Jacob and all of his brothers in the promised land, and he will become the one who leads the negotiation that not only saves the struggling infant nation of Israel, who is only 70 people at this time, but arranges for them to be welcomed down into Egypt, where then the story will unfold and and Israel will ultimately, over the course of a number of years, become a great nation. Yet, faithfully sitting in, in Egypt through all of the trials he's going to face is Joseph. Now, the spiritual pride could be there when people look at Joseph's 22 years of faithfulness versus Judah's 22 years of unfaithfulness and say, why do they both get the, the, the same salvation? So this story is here to show us, to warn us of the danger of spiritual pride. Jesus makes this point quite clear in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 because he contrasts the prodigal's father's joy with his elder brother's scorn when the prodigal returns. The father welcomed the lost son home with open arms. The brother was angry because he'd been faithful all those years and the father had never arranged for the young fatted calf to be slaughtered for a party for him. And what does the father say? You've been with me always. My son was dead, but now he is alive. Judah is the prodigal, and the story gives hope to those who come to faith later in life because it speaks to the pride of resentment that can be present in those who serve faithfully throughout their lives. And to make this abundantly clear, Jesus will come from the line of Judah, not Joseph. Now, the second lesson, first is a warning against spiritual pride. The second lesson is failure at a critical crossroads is not necessarily fatal. Joseph's success at his crossroads in Egypt will save Israel from starvation. But Joseph wouldn't have been in Egypt if it wasn't for Judah's decisions, for Judah's failures at a critical crossroad. Now, if Reuben, who wanted to rescue Joseph and bring him back to Jacob to re-win his father's uh, love for him, if Reuben had been successful in rescuing Joseph, Israel would have remained shepherds in the wilderness and would soon starve in the famine that was to come. 
But Judah's actions, although they seemed a failure, put Joseph in the rich farmland of Egypt where he's used by God to save the 70 people of Jacob's family who would grow into the great nation of Israel. And the rest, as they say, is history. And while we are not to use this as an excuse for disobedience, remember every critical crossroad is an opportunity to let the Spirit of God guide us. So we're not to use this as an excuse, but as, as and remember that Samuel told King Song to obey is always better than sacrifice. But when we fail, Judah's story shows us that God is merciful and has the power to redeem our failures. This was a lesson that we discussed in Sunday school this morning. And now we see it clearly here in the biblical truth of the story of Judah. So not every critical crossroad failure is fatal. Third, the original audience found strength for their difficult pilgrimage from these events, but the full impact would not be known until the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Judah's greatest son, Jesus. Because Jesus' total obedience as a second Adam and his sacrifice for sin enables God the Father to be just in forgiving sin of sinners, to be justified, to be the justifier of the one who has mercy. God declares sinners righteous because of Christ, who is the justifier of sinners. Paul writes these familiar words. Adam read them earlier. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship who is his we are the father's workmanship created in Christ Jesus the son for the good works he has prepared beforehand that spirit empowered we might walk in them a whole triune statement here in Ephesians 2 10 isn't there Because God credits sinners with the righteousness of Jesus by his gift of faith, all our failures at every critical crossroads have been covered by the blood of Christ. And because our sin is forgiven, we will have no regrets in eternity. I don't know about you, but I sometimes wake up at 2 a.m. thinking back on some of the things I've done. Why won't we have regrets in eternity? Because we will see him face to face. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ who covers all our sins. And then we will trace that love's design by the cross of Calvary. I am his and he's mine. So our guilt over the what-ifs in our lives will all be gone and we'll see with perfect clarity how God ordered every choice we made 
to accomplish our salvation and the renewal of all things so that his glory will be celebrated forever and ever. And we won't regret that we didn't dare to be a Daniel. We won't regret that we didn't conquer the Goliaths in our lives because salvation is not what we do. It's what Christ has done. So as we gaze in the wonder of the glory of God in the face of Christ, we won't see our Judah moments of rejecting God's grace or revoking our promises. Instead, we'll marvel forever at what Paul describes in Romans 11 when he writes this. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what can we say when we look with amazement at how all things in our lives, our choices from the beginning to the end are all part of your redemptive plan of controlling all things so that you are glorified and for us to be preserved and elevated ultimately to be the bride of Christ, his church made spotless, by his finished work. Father, we see the sins of Judah. We see a life that seemed ruined to be shipwrecked. Yet at crucial moments, crucial crossroads, you brought him to the point where his life was changed and empowered by the Spirit, he began to do the things that he needed to do and you used him to rescue your people according to your plan, a people who 400 years later would enter the promised land and fulfill all those promises made to Abraham in the physical, but the even greater promise that regardless of their sin until the land vomited them out and you brought them back, regardless of all of that, they took hope knowing that from Judah's line comes the Lion of David. Their greatest king's line brings the crowning glory of humanity in Jesus Christ. And Father, his life reversed all of the sins that went before it for those that you have given faith to believe in him. So now, Father, on this side of the cross, we stand with the hope of glory. And hope is... It was, is, is not things unseen. It's hope that Abraham saw as he looked for the city whose maker and foundation was God. Father, encourage us through this story, but help us as we stand at those critical crosswords and even the uncritical ones that come day in and day out that we would pause and let your spirit work in our hearts to direct us to do the right thing to direct us to honor you by what we do, not to, not, not to earn our salvation, but to please you because of our salvation. Thank you, Father, 
for the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And we will thank you in all eternity. So equip us now, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, if you'll stand, let's close one last song.